Hi everyone, welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I'm Boris Evenstein. I'm sitting here with Angus, Angus Ridgway, who joins us again this week. Um, Angus was on show number 11 when we talked about leadership and leadership with character. And we had such a blast uh, speaking and frankly riffing somewhat impressionistically on different concepts that both of us were somehow triggered by. So we decided to do this again and we thought we'd use summer as a bit of an excuse to do a couple of episodes actually on the broad space of leadership, which in the way that we treat the topic becomes basically a how-to on, you know, how to live somehow. And so we thought that would be cool and uh, free-flowing. And so here I am with Angus. How you doing? I'm delighted to be back. I've just been hiking in the north of Iceland since we last spoke, uh, which was great, but at times quite brutal. But yeah, overall, you, fantastic. You, you were saying it had everything from sort of sunny spells and warm weather to Arctic temperatures, 24-hour sun. Like, Give us a bit of a flavor for, for what, what that was like. Yeah, I mean, some days it was like four degrees and um, horizontal heavy rain. Um, and you really have to look deep inside yourself to say, yeah, we are going to go out hiking today. But as they say in Iceland and other places, there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothing. So luckily, we had good clothing, and we just we made a feature out of the craziness of it, which which was fun. And and then a day later, it was it was 20 degrees, 22 degrees, which is um, which is wonderful. And you quickly get into this mode of this is just normal 20 degrees, but actually that that was the abnormal weather. Enjoyable though it was. Fascinating. Did you feel a bit like Antarctica, where one day kind of looks like the next, and you have to sort of pinch yourself to be absolutely certain you're not dreaming? Or, you know, how do you know it's Tuesday versus Saturday? Yeah, we completely lost track of all of that because it's it. We were in the northern part of the country, which is actually really isolated. This it's so sort of beyond farmland, and um, it's just yourself, nature, some wooden huts, a bit of midnight sun, which is really incredible. Um, and uh, as you slow towards the end, as you slowly drive back towards Reykjavik, you sort of start to notice, notice farmland, animals, fences, uh, electricity cables, and so on. And then you realize that yes, infrastructure does exist. And then you get a bit close to Reykjavik. So, oh yeah, I remember roads and tunnels and people and that kind of stuff. So fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. Great. Well, that certainly goes on one of the many bucket lists. Um, <laughs> personally, I'm in Spain right now, uh, recording this from Mallorca, and took a road trip with one of my children in an electric vehicle to see if uh, what they say is really true, that electric vehicles are basically useless on long-distance trips. So for all the petrol heads out there, my experience for what it's worth, it was eminently doable. Uh, we had great times, stopovers at a couple of superchargers, but made it all the way from Berlin to Toulon and across the ferry. The ferry company did not dismiss us um, as a fire hazard. We got on and here we are now riding around. And the fun thing is we noticed that electric charge points on Mallorca are actually free because the Balearic government is trying to introduce some sort of incentive to, to hmm. use this mode of transport. And so we're charging for free, which is pretty cool. Great. I'm very, very pleased with ourselves. Mm. Anyway, um, so about today, we wanted to do so maybe just a backstory for our listeners. Uh, you and I were sort of reflecting on whether we could do more in the space of 
leadership and leadership development because it's so instrumental to this broader concept of doing well, feeling fine. There's this notion of self-leadership and how you conduct yourself and build character and become somehow an effective but also a good person in the moral sense of the term. And we thought we'd love to do more on that. We also got some encouraging feedback from listeners on the first episode that we did together. But then um, I initially rushed to the task with a simplistic framework and structure and tried to put it all into some sort of curriculum. And then that just didn't feel right. It wasn't really in tune with the way that we talk and, and, and think and bat around ideas. So we said, you know what? It's summer. It's typically the moment when people take a step back, they reflect on what is it that I'm doing? What is it that I want to achieve? Whether it's just for, you know, age two of 2023 or more broadly in life. And we said, let's just do a more improvised, more free-flowing, potentially more creative format where we talk about leadership and then maybe meta-leadership questions that we that we surfaced. And one of the ones that we wanted to kick off on today is this idea of endings and beginnings because summer is also a moment when people you know look at their portfolio of work and they say is this what I want to do and even if they double down and say yes absolutely it is they typically define projects around this time they say what do I want to wrap up and sort of declare victory on or defeat and move on what is it that I want to start and so we thought that's a great place to to begin this episode we also elicited a bunch of audience questions. So thank you for all of you who have written in, texted, sent emails. Um, we've got quite a good roster of questions and we'll try to cover a few of those off. If we don't get through all of them, we'll pick off a few more in at least one more episode that we'll do later on in the summer. And then who knows where we're going to get to with our dialogue here. Right. So that's the plan. Angus, you and I were brainstorming and you said, what, why don't we tackle the topic of what's it like to start all over again? What got you, what got you thinking in this direction? Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I, I'm a graduate from an MBA school called INSEAD, and uh, we're having our 30-year reunion meeting in October. And here we all are, roughly the same age, 57, 58, 59 years old. Uh, and we have a slot on campus where we as a group can talk about something together. And we've been debating as a, as a group, what do we talk about? Uh, and the theme that seemed to be high up in everybody's mind is the R word, which is retirement. How to retire, whether to retire. And it seems to be a, somehow a, a source of anxiety for everybody. This is the thing we need to talk about. And I I felt very uncomfortable with this conversation because I don't like the R word. And I was just thinking about, you know, why do we even use this word? And I think it goes back to what the world was like 30 or 40 years ago uh, when you were a company man. And I'm using the word man because at that time, most people were company men. And after 20 years, you got a tight pin, and 25 years, you maybe get a watch, and after 30 years, you retire. Uh, and you retire because you're exhausted. Uh, and if you're lucky, you might have a few years left before you die. Uh, and, and that was kind of the model, uh, and it's given us a language. Uh, and even today, we're still in this word, and I'm inclined to think that when we're thinking that we're needing to retire, 
it's not that we need to retire, it's actually we need to recover. Uh, and once you have fully recovered, if you do fully recover, then retiring won't feel like it's the right thing anymore. And so we, in a way, we need to replace one R word with another R word here. Retirement needs to be replaced by recovery. So that's been top of mind for me. And I think what we, where we should be taking this conversation a bit is rather about endings but rather, and take it towards beginnings. Uh, when we transition, how do we organize transition to new beginnings? Because that's, that's much healthier, interesting, exciting for conversation. And it's also a hard conversation because uh, that's where the heavy lifting is. It's easy to say, I'm going to retire. It's much harder to say, I'm going to start something new. So that was kind of why this, this has been buzzing around a bit in, in my head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there is something appealing about this notion of an end point. So I picked up the sentence, if you won the game, stop playing. So there's a whole narrative in that sentence, which is just about if you achieve a certain level of financial independence and reputational currency, so you are already made somehow in the public eye or in someone's perception. I don't know who's exactly, but by someone's standard, you're sort of graduated from the rat race. Now you can go and chill. So congratulations, you've made it in Monopoly. You get to go past go one more time, collect that money, and then you do what exactly? And so mm -hmm. I also found that point interesting and a little weird. The end point part is kind of clear. You declare victory on what is essentially your life's work, potentially. And that's why also it's appealing to stay in one industry, maybe with a company. So you have a like, tracker record and there's an accumulation of things you've delivered. And then you won the game, stop playing. But in practice, it struck me that the stories that I hear, they don't really work that way. And so people don't feel ready to just relax and do nothing. In fact, for the people that I spoke with, that felt somehow like death. And there's all kinds of weird psychological things going on when you're suddenly confronted with your own finitude. And, and then that point hits home when you're no longer needed. And, and it's evident that you're required to deliver impact. So here you are, and you're sat there, and you can play golf or whatever. So how then to open the next chapter? And a few things that I wanted to maybe put on the table that you you can react to are things like it's easy to keep going if you have a track record and you have that reputational currency and frankly capability so you know what you're doing it's easy to keep going when you begin again at least on some accounts you have no reputational currency you might not even have leverage in the sense that if you're operating in a larger organization or so some level of seniority you can command resources around fairly easily now you can't do that so it's risky, it's reputationally risky, it might not pay off, and you could destroy all this valuable achievement that you've delivered so far, so people are hesitant. What's another way of thinking about beginnings? Like, what's your way for thinking about beginnings? Yeah, I, I think the, um, perhaps the, the additional thought is just to bring to life just how exhilarating it is at the very beginning of, of something. Now, I remember when we when we founded Potential Life at the very beginning, it was a shock for me because I'd been in a corporate environment for 20 years and some things I had to relearn. For example, when in this new environment, when I put my pen down and I came back three or four days later, the pen would just be sitting there waiting for me to carry on. Well, you might say, well, isn't that obvious? Well, no, in my previous life, I would externalize a thought 
and things would just happen because I had resources who would hear, hear my thoughts and and I had to understand, I had to unlearn a whole bunch of things. So, and that was the, the, the sort of deeply ingrained sort of uh, being stuck in my sort of legacy model. However, when you create something from nothing, when you go from zero to, to one and bring it to the world and people say, this is crazy. And you say, but of course it's crazy. If you thought it wasn't crazy, it wouldn't be original idea. Somebody else already would have thought of it. That's, that's, that's the joy of, uh, of being in this space of the as yet undiscovered, the territory not yet trodden on. And that can be really, really, really exhilarating. Of course, most times it will fail, but sometimes it will work. Uh, and that's a magical space to dare to go into. And I, I really would encourage people to see the that upside potential as being definitely worth exploring as a sort of offsetting way of weighing things up compared to the holding on to all of the things that seem so so easy and in my view may aren't they just a little bit boring those things that are easy to continue after a while isn't there a danger that you're just cruising is that what we want to be doing do we want to cruise i i i don't know let me challenge to say the cruising life is perhaps not the the life best lived however the self-directed life typically defined by more freedom and degrees of freedom to shape the journey comes with a lot of risk and it also comes with a very high responsibility to shape that journey well. And I'm not sure if everybody's really ready for freedom. Now, if we take the company man, company woman narrative, there is so much structure in living your life according to a script defined through the eyes of some third party. There's a lot of structure there. You kind of know how to behave. And I was somehow thinking or reminded of Thomas Mann's famous novel, The Wooden Box, where the entire novel is somehow about social expectations and how people manage or don't manage to live into those roles successfully. And those who do have kind of delivered a life well lived and they can peacefully die and rest in peace. And, and those who have failed to meet those social expectations are then even as individuals somehow a failure. So you have this coincidence of the individual with the script. In the freedom version, you don't have that. You're free to shape it. And today might be a great day and today might be a poor day and some person might validate what you're doing and maybe they don't. So you have to be the architect of that journey. You have to be the judge of its value. It's very hard to know whether you're winning or what are you doing? Are you? And so people fall back onto, well, let me at least measure it somehow by the money that I'm making, the customers I acquire, the followers that follow me, the top voice award on LinkedIn that I have or have not received. So you fall back on those structures and scripts to know whether what you're doing is correct. Is there another way of navigating the self-directed path successfully? Well, I, I, you know, before you said it's it's risky. Um, and, you know, I don't really like the risk word. Uh, I mean, when you say it's risky, what you're saying is it might not work out. That's true. Um, are we saying that we should live in a life where we don't have things that might not work out? Um, I don't know. Um, I think we all need safety in our lives. 
So let's have a conversation about how do we characterize safety? You know, there's, there's relationship safety and financial safety and, and maybe other forms of safety. And I think maybe what we need to be having a conversation about is, am I holistically in a place where I'm feeling safe, adequately safe? Uh, and in that cocktail of forms of safety, um, am I willing to do things that might not work out? My encouragement, instead of yet another R word, instead of using the, the R word of risk, ask yourselves, do I have enough intrinsic safety in my life so I can dare to try stuff? It's really experimentation. Uh, and, um, and I think it, it's true. You, we, I think we talked last time about the, the famous quote from Reed Hastings who talks about entrepreneurship is like jumping out of an airplane expecting that you'll land on the back of a bird and and for most people you don't but sometimes you do um now that's an extreme way of talking about it, which in many ways is discouraging uh i think we should perhaps lower the bar somewhat and say dare to live allow live a life where some things simply might not work out because when things might not work out the joy of when they do work out is such an exhilaration. It's, it's definitely a prize worth having. How, how are you thinking about this idea of reputation? And to, to come back to this previous point on these socially available scripts and the whole legacy of the Buddenborgs living according to a reputable standard and spending you know decades in a company to build a certain reputation – People seem very attached to their reputations. and yeah, But nobody else is. I, I, I really want to encourage people to let go. Here we have another R word. I think maybe this yes. is going to be a theme for days. Exactly. We need to be letting go of our reputations or our, our feeling that somehow they're important. Nobody gives a damn. You know, in my previous firm, the people at the top of the firm at any moment in time were, were very famous inside the firm at that moment. They were the managing directors and the leaders of regions and so on. And then they go and somebody else takes over. They are immediately forgotten. Immediately. There is no sustainable power to reputation. It's like Pep Guardiola, who's the manager of Manchester City Football Club, who I'm not a supporter of, but I admire him as a, as a, as a manager. And people asked him about his reputation. He says, look, I've, I've achieved a few things, but once I've finished, people will remember me for a few months and then I'll be forgotten just like everybody else. I think it's beautiful way of seeing the world we shouldn't be hanging on to this abstract thing that really we are the only ones that care about nobody cares about anybody else's reputation i think we should be letting go i think that's that's quite i think that's quite profound also very difficult but with the rise of social media we are increasingly wrapped up in personas that we try to embody live into represent another r word maybe and those representations we become very attached to and so we get concerned mm. with the number of likes of the posts or followers and these sorts of things you're all you're asking us to cast it off in a way i mean use it for what it's worth but I think, yeah, I think it's important to understand the business value of this. I mean, the, w one person who I admire for their communication skills is, is Simon Sinek. You may know that this. Yeah. He's a genius communicator. Uh, and he says things uh, on LinkedIn, and there's 550,000 people that like it. 
I read what it says, and there's a little piece of me inside me saying, I could have said that, but if I'd posted it, maybe I would have had 3,000 or 5,000, who knows? So I, I'm sort of envious and admirative at the same time. But this is part of his business system. You know, he sells books. He, you know, he's got a whole ecosystem in which his reputation is a defining piece. Brilliant. Absolute genius. But it's also going to be the same for him. For him. Once he's gone, nobody else is going to give a damn. Um, so, it, it, so it would be interesting with Simon to have a conversation how central to your sense of self is this incredible reputation that you have? It might well be that for Simon, that he understands perfectly well that's a brilliant component of his business system, but is in no respects a defining part of his persona. That I'm just projecting, I don't know, but it'd be an interesting conversation to have. Indeed, he's very welcome to come onto the podcast. We'll host him anytime. <laughs> I'm <laughs> right. <got> invited. <laughs> exactly. Don't say you were never invited, Simon. Um, just back to endings one last time. I want to come back to this idea that at summer, people look on their work and portfolios. This might be the moment in the year where they take two or more weeks off. And we all know that in the cycle of unwinding and rewinding, you slowly start to have more um, yeah, how shall I say, meta-level thoughts on what it is that you're doing when you've been out for more than a week. Um, mm. So here we are, and that's that time of the year. Is there any generic way we can talk about guiding people on how to think about whether it's time to close a chapter, or open a new chapter? What sorts of signs might one encounter when it sort of feels like, you know, open up a new book? Yeah, I, I, um, it reminds me of this quote. I think it was J.P. Morgan who said, I can do a year's worth of work in nine months, but not in 12. Uh, and it's interesting that he chose to say nine months, not uh, 11 months. Uh, and this idea that the, the summer wind-down period, I don't think it's a, a two-week wind-down, if perhaps you're in Northern Europe, or a or four-week wind-down if you're in Southern Europe. I think it's a whole period that separates June when we're feeling it's time to stop and September when it's time to start again. And the question is, what's all the low-level processing that's actually happening over those three months' time? And I think if, after all of those months, you're going back in September and it's not feeling right, it's feeling really, really hard then you've got yourself a very important signal. And it's, it's important to hear that signal rather than say, stop being pathetic, you've had a great holiday, just get back into it. Um, and so that would be just the sort of uh, something as a step zero in this process to hear your body uh, as you go through this, this seasonal uh, recovery period. I like the fact that it's that you described it as cyclical because it does really tend to feel like that since the days of school where you're sort of socialized and trained on the fact that, okay, June, you close the grade, September, you begin again. And you also usually experience that rush of energy that comes with that period, whether it's again, I mean, talking Northern Hemisphere now, weather typically tends to be a little bit cooler, you're sobering up from the hazy, delirious summer weeks, and then you get that energy of, you know, let's create again, let's have impact. What's our mission now for H2? That sort of energy comes in a cyclical way. Mm. Um, 
And I like that. It's kind of like a metaphor for it. It never really stops, even if it's the autumn of your life. Somehow, you mentioned age 60 or whatever, typical age of retirement. You may want to push well past that because the cycle just keeps coming. Um, renewal's always there. It's not somehow... Yeah. No, I think this idea of cycles is really important. And we could even sort of lay out the full spectrum here because we have the, the shortest cycle is the day. We all need to sleep at night. Uh, and then that's micro recovery. We And if we manage ourselves reasonably well, when we get home in the evening, we are still able to have a good evening with our partners and our children because we've still got something left in the tank. Uh, but we have that night there. Then we have the sort of the week in, week out recovery, healthy life, living so that over the course of the year, we're looking after ourselves. And then we have the thing we were just talking about, the macro recovery. Once a year, one, one season in the year, I'm really taking a step back so I can relaunch myself for the next year. But I think there are other cycles as well beyond that. You know, I, I'm a believer in the sort of the four-year cycle. You know, we can, we can launch ourselves on a new venture and give ourselves a three to four-year horizon to run at something. But typically, at least in my experience, after that period... Even with the annual breaks we're talking about, it's time to stop, to look around and take a fundamental, is this, the, you know, how am I going to re-engineer the next four-year phase of my life? And um, in my life, I'm hoping that I've got a whole bunch of four-year cycles in front of me. I don't know, you know, I don't know how many of them I'll have, um, but I can guess what the lower boundary is and the upper boundary and, and, uh, and, that's one way of thinking about the the remaining runway of my life is maybe, maybe you know maybe I've got another five such cycles. Just think yeah. what you do with five four year cycles. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it sounds like five additional potential biographies or at least chapters. And I recall having had a conversation with a former colleague of ours, um, someone in their forties, and this person was describing their next chapter in their career and they introduced it by saying i maybe have one more swing of the bat left in me and, and I, I was younger so i couldn't really gauge at the time why that would be weird to say that when you're in your mid-40s but it somehow felt to him like he had the energy and the stamina left maybe for one more bout of four years of something really difficult in in a challenging setting with a hard problem to solve and so on what you described sounds a lot more like potentially you can just go on if you're vital if you have vitality you just go on yeah and vitality is a, a very important word and it's not just one of those sort of sort of words that begins with v then we, we kind of roughly know what it means it really for me vitality is about proactive management of your energy and thinking about all of these horizons we've been talking about and i remember when i was in my mid-40s um perhaps a little younger and i remember the kids were little and um, my mother came to visit us in Paris with a friend who was in his 70s, late 70s. And I remember this guy. I was, I myself was basically barely monosyllabic over the weekend. I was just so drained. And this guy in his 70s was bright, uh, chirpy, energetic, smart, funny. And I remember saying to myself at the time, I want to be like he is now, not like I will be when I'm in my 70s. What have I been doing to myself to get myself into such a state in my 40s where I'm a, a, a pathetic shadow next to this 
mid-70s person. Uh, that's not good. That was poor vitality management uh, yeah. on my part. And I think every time you hear somebody using the language of the final swing of the bat, we should take the conversation back to vitality and how you are taking ownership of how you manage your energy levels. Yes. Yeah, there's a whole another episode, I think, just in that question right there. I'd, I want to come back to one potential maybe counter argument to what we've just discussed. It sounds like so far we said, well, look, if you're not really learning and you're not really energized and you can't bear the thought of coming back to what you're doing in September, just change, take a risk, do something. In fact, it's not a risk. Come up with some minimum standard of secu security that will sustain you through it and then just go for it. And frankly, reputational risk, forget about it. No one cares about your ego as much as you do. Most people don't think about you at all, frankly, full stop. And even if you do command some notoriety, fame, or uh, high standard reputation, the moment that you are no longer part of that structure, let's say you step out of a particular role, bang, it disappears anyway. So what the heck, go for it. Here's a counter narrative, just to try it on for size. Oh yeah. If you're in your 40s and beyond, and you have a stable setup, and you can make some money, the world is uncertain enough and full of things that can go badly, if you're in a situation where you can sustain your family, make some money, and keep everybody safe, that's your duty now. You're in the service of that goal. Put your ego down. It's not about you finding your mission, purpose, self-actualization, like quiet that voice and bring home the goods. That's it. That's your job now. Just like generations of people before you. What would you, what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I think it's very important. Um, and what I would say is we need to be thoughtful about how we use the, the word duty. Because I think sometimes we slightly misuse it. Um, um, and sometimes we have a negative association with, oh, I'm doing it out of a sense of duty. Duty doesn't have to be negative. I mean, I have duty to my children, which is, which is joyous and unquestioning duty. Um, and so when we say I'm doing it out of a sense of duty, it's actually not actually duty. It's rather out of a lack of acceptance of my situation. Uh, and we all have choices. If you're choosing to stay where you are because it makes most sense from uh, as an optimization of a, a complex set of things, then assume it. But at that point, if you're assuming it, the questioning voice goes away because you've accepted it. Mm. If the questioning voice is still there, then really what you're saying is you're not actually accepting it. And then it means you've still got some work to do to figure out what to do. And so I, I think an awful lot of what this really comes down is, is, is actually proper acceptance of things and, and, and not using words like duty to actually avoid the heavy lifting on, on the thinking. Um, and, and if me saying such a thing is going to force people to say, oh, maybe I actually need to think harder about whether, I really, whether I'm actually able to fully accept this to the point that those dissenting voices go away, which would be a perfectly fine outcome, or whether I actually have to seriously think about bringing some changes. And maybe they're not revolutionary changes, but maybe there are real changes. So I can put myself on a path that uh, maintains an op some kind of optimal in which the voices can go away. 
you're you're sort of saying don't outsource the heavy lifting of grappling with whether you are genuinely accepting this or not to some third party duty the social system commands that you just simply act out that role and frankly past the age of 40 you have no more say in it just like own it and accept it but yeah you have because to... i think because it's actually not duty uh remember how we think about duty to our children which is a loving non-painful thing it's actually not thinking things through and fully accepting the the implications and the consequences of our choice. Maybe one last question before we go into some listener questions, which yeah. could be fun to see if we can riff on those. Um, as we think about beginnings, what sorts of goals should one optimize for in, in your point of view? So obviously you could say, I want more money. So money's a goal or financial independence or economic security. I mean, there are more polite ways of articulating this. Anyway, it's a dollar sign. You could say, I want to build something. So the creative impulse is strong. I need to make something from nothing. And I maybe haven't done that yet, or I haven't done that in a way that expresses my capacity for creative labor, the sense that I really am capable of, and I still need to go do that. You could say, I want to solve a problem for customers. Like there are people out there who are struggling with X. My job is to unplug X and make that better. You could go and say, I want some sort of societal impact in the world, environmental, social, doesn't matter, but it, like there's a purpose behind that. Or you could simply say, I need to go learn something new. Like this is all a bit boring and humdrums. I need to learn something. So what are some good drivers for beginnings? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I think it raises this question, what is the goal of a goal? Uh, and I think uh, it's worth exploring this because my sense is the goal of the goal is not to achieve the goal. The goal of the goal is to have a goal. It doesn't matter what the hell happens uh, because the having of a goal is the thing that helps us get out of bed in the morning. Uh, and we don't know what the future is going to be made up of. So the chances are we're going to have to adapt our goals anyway. And so if we use goals to help us move forward purposefully, then that's, I think, as far as we can take goals per se. You know, the, the achieving of goals, um, I know this is quite cliched, but it's, it's been demonstrated, I think, scientifically. The achieving of goals per se doesn't actually provide any form of life satisfaction. There's been research done with tenuring of professors in the university environment, and, you know, you work for many, many years, and this is, this is the ultimate thing tenureship as a as a professor uh, and then they analyzed those professors when they get ten tenureship how how is it uh, and it turns out that becoming tenured only gives a temporary positive blip in life satisfaction and then people go back to being as happy or as unhappy as they were before so and you know we and we all we can all imagine many many other sort of equivalent examples of this so it's not about the getting there it's about let's use the fact that we have goals to help us go about our days with more focus and purpose and perseverance yeah it's an, it's it's interesting i mean you're turning the means and the ends on their head right there um yeah. but that's probably what comes closest to the truth and the other thing implicit in what you just said is that for many people i'm not sure for all how would i know but for many people you do kind of come back to your happiness set point at some point. I mean, obviously there are 
better and worse conditions and you could be in good health or in bad health or there could be some drama in your life that is external to your setup but broadly the set point calibrates how you feel about things with a fairly narrow degree of deviation i suppose but but, but i don't want to at the same time i don't want to sort of create this impression that we can live an entirely direction long-term direction this life as long as we're using goals to help us get out of bed in the morning i think it is cool if as you look back on the thread of your life you can see some threads and patterns that give shape that mean that as you look at your life it feels like it has meaningful shape so let's pivot maybe to a few of the questions that our listeners put uh, for this episode mm. and see if we can if we can work through those on the subject of doneness are managers done so are we going to need those who design goals, distribute tasks, and take stock of whether those have been delivered to some level of you know, satisfaction. Is the role of the manager outdated? I guess they're driving at the spread of AI and other changes to the workplace. But do we still need people who tell other people what to do? Yeah, I don't know. Um, what I think is that there is a sort of bigger trend towards what we would, might refer to as leadership. And I think it's interesting to just say, what do we mean by management and what do we mean by leadership? You know, I was reading some of the questions about, you know, there's a tension perhaps between getting things done and then I'm leading you. Uh, actually, I think that's just all management. You know, I think leadership is very much more in the space of helping other people release their own magic. You know, that's that's an act of leadership and whatever happens happens uh, and you're creating an organization where people's magic is coming out that that's very much more in this in the in the in the spirit of leadership and I think in an AI world we're going to need that because those things that will be left for us humans to do will be those things that are less and less routine based uh, and the more and more they're magical creative quick, um, the more likely, the, the, the longer they're going to continue have a, have a relevance. I, I would agree with, uh, with that definition of leadership, this notion of help others do more, become more, achieve more than they thought possible, and somehow unleash that magic is something we'll still need. I would also say the manager defined as the quote-unquote dedicated owner of a particular problem that needs solving, and I'm stealing here somewhat liberally from Amazon's definition of dedicated ownership as the person who owns a customer problem on behalf of the customers, take, takes responsibility for fixing it, and deploys teams or resources or at least team members towards that goal, I think we'll still need that. So we'll, we'll need people who, who are the dedicated owners of Topic X and who can think in multiple work streams at the same time and make sure that something gets done towards that end. And there will still be people who can think in only one or two work streams because they're just learning how to do that. So there'll be someone there to own the thing end to end, I guess. What do you think? Um, I actually don't know. I, I, it's so hard. I mean, I, the only thing that's really caught my attention on, on the, the AI thing is the, the fact that if you're a hairdresser, it's likely that your job is not going to be replaced by AI um, because it's very difficult to codify in its minutest detail and the stakes of getting it wrong are high. 
Uh, and I took that as an interesting contrast between being a lawyer or a doctor or, or what have you. And w one thought I have, I'm working, we're working with the university now, and a, a lot of the students are using AI in order to, to, let's not call it cheating, they're being smart, right? They're using AI in order to get to answers that otherwise wouldn't have been possible to. And I'm inclined to say, if you're a student and you're in a subject matter area where you can use AI to do your exams, then it's likely that whatever profession you thought you're preferring, preferring for is likely to disappear through AI anyway. Mm. Uh, and so you shouldn't be studying in that area, would be my thought. I, I saw something yesterday about the a, a set of, I think, UK or European universities, including Oxford and Cambridge. It's sort of the equivalent of Ivy League, some university federation, I don't know what it's called. And they said they would allow students to use AI assistance. And I'm guessing what they're saying is, look, it's unavoidable, so you might as well use it, but the standards will become higher. So we'll have more expectations of what you put out there. It's kind of interesting, right? And it, it seems to yeah, me- Yeah, it's like, like an arms race. I mean, it also yeah, raises the bar yeah. for, for the universities because they're going to have to be able Absolutely. To, to see what's the where's the magic. Uh, but hey, if, if, if we're all heading that way, then we should be on the front foot on, on this rather than on the back foot defending against this. Exactly. Next one. Next one comes back to, I think, this distinction you just touched on between managing and leading. And um, this listener would like to hear us talk a bit about the relationship between leaders and followers. He describes it as a triangle. On one hand, leaders are demanding and encouraging. So I would translate this loosely as providing direction, but also coaching. And then on the follower side, consenting or delivering. What's your take, our take on that model how do we balance this does one thing come before the other is there something missing but, in that picture but i think i think that's all management it's maybe advanced management but you know setting direction is an act of management uh, and you can be a leader leaderly direction setter or you can be an unleaderly direction setter but it's still an act of management i think And I think if if we're going to be talking about leadership, I think we should reserve this to, for the realm of those things that are really much more about uh, enabling other people to liberate themselves to achieve magic in a way that's outside the realms of uh, of, of an organization. It's helping people with their own self-actualization, I think, is where we should be sort of exploring the subject of of leadership. Now, not to say that there isn't a really valuable question about this tension that exists between compliance and uh, enablement, which I think is an interesting conversation, um, an interesting managerial conversation. Uh, and, um, and knowing how to do this well uh, is really, really important. Do follower expectations change generationally? And should one adjust leadership style to keep up with that? Or should you rather find your own style and then just follow through? true to character. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think there are some really real patterns for these different generations that are in the common language that we all use. Uh, and, you know, for a while we were all complaining a little bit and frustrated with millennials. But actually millennials are both an inspiration as well as being a frustration because the millennials were basically saying to us, I will, I will, I will commit to you if you give meaning to me. Uh, if I don't have meaning, I'm not going to get out of bed in the morning. 
And we found that very frustrating because we're expected, our generation expect people just simply to do their job. Uh, and then uh, the meaning question is maybe a nice to have that you, 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 you worry about when you have your midlife crisis. And, and all of a sudden we had these youngsters saying it has to be meaningful. Actually, they were laying down the gauntlet in a very positive way, challenging us to think about what is the meaning of what we're doing. But I think with, with um, Gen Zs, it's, it's different. Because millennials, they're actually committed to the institution. They, they still believed in the institution. I think with Gen Zs, we have something different. They've lost faith in the power and the trust that they can give to an institution. So they're playing a little bit of cat and mouse with the institution. Should I or shouldn't I? When is this race actually going to start? Am I actually going to start this race? Or am I just standing on my bicycle with the two pedals wondering whether I'm going to get started? So as leaders with Gen Z's, we need to think about how do we help them get to the point where they decide, they decide, decide to start the race? Um, I think that, you know, I don't know what the obvious answer is. We can explore that together, but it's a different sort of challenge than the challenge that we had with the the millennials. And then the, the generation above this, they're the ones who are even less creative than the millennials, the, the folks who just wanted to have a sort of a steady career path. And with those people, we need to dare them to be creative um, and to have purpose and to live according to purpose. I think nested in that question might also be the broader question of politics in the workplace. So perhaps some of the generations that you described there have increasingly sought the employer to address broader societal themes. And the institution in society is not neutral. It doesn't just exist in a vacuum. It is part of the social fabric. Some of the things like inequality are refracted through the institution. You know, it employs potentially hundreds or thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not somehow outside of that. Now, what this listener might be getting at is, what should one do with a more politicized generation? Address it head on, take the yeah. stance that, say, someone like a Brian Armstrong took with Coinbase, say that there's no place for politics in the workplace, we are mission-driven, we focus on the customer, everything else. Of course, you're free to engage in whatever societal way you like and, and want to, but not in the workplace. So how to navigate that? What's your thought? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And we're seeing this at the moment geopolitically with things that are, that are going on in different parts exactly. of the world. Exactly. Um, I, a little story. I remember a few years ago going out for lunch one day and coming back to the office and all of the employees of Potential Life were on the pavement on strike. They had withdrawn their labor. Um, it was it was serious, but I don't think they were seriously ex ex expecting to conduct a, a multi-week strike. What was going on? Uh, they had noticed that we were in the process of the early stages of a competitive proposal to a, a well-known tobacco company, European-based tobacco company, which I had seen and I hadn't thought much about and I hadn't reacted to, and there it was before we knew it, it was in the pipeline. The entirety of my company says, Angus, you have to decide. Uh, either we don't serve this institution, in which case you get to continue working with us, 
or you're going to find a different organization because it won't be us. Now, there's different ways of responding to this, but I chose to take this as an inspiration because there's a real act of character coming back to something we talked about. They believed in this and they're willing to put their themselves on the line in the defense of something they believed in. Um, I think what's important here is to, to follow all the way through and not to be called out on lip service. And I think when we hear people saying they're not doing politics, I think the danger is that an awful lot of this is um, lip service, it's um, sort of greenwashing, various forms of, of, of washing, uh, it's signaling a virtue, but actually the willingness to align a whole organization around the full set of indications of such a thing uh, isn't there, in which case it's hip hypocrisy. Uh, and, and what's very important, I think, is an organization has some form of institutional authenticity that actually it's aligned in terms of its values. And I think uh, it's, uh, that's what we should be testing for on all of these questions. What's the true level of institutional authenticity on these topics? Yeah, as especially as it's, it's going to inevitably be a matter of degree and situated judgment. So it's a sliding scale. At some point you might say, well, tobacco, maybe not for us. Defense, maybe yes for us. Because there are certain things we associate, let's say, continental ideals or mm. liberal democratic values, which require defending. And you might end up saying, well, yes, actually, this industry, yes. The other industry, no. Very good. Angus, I think that's all we've got time for, for this installment. And uh, maybe we can both pivot now to recovery mode or rewind mode or whatever it is that we find ourselves doing at this part in the summer. Um, yeah. yeah, we covered a lot from reputation to recovery, rewinding, retirement, uh, risk, and of course, a bunch of listener questions. Um, we'll connect later in the summer. We'll come back to this notion of vibrancy. I think we need to put a pin into that one and uh, unpack a little bit. Yeah, great. It's a pleasure. Now, thank you very good. much. Uh, have a great few more weeks and we'll catch up later in the summer. Yeah. All the best. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com.